1: And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Um, All right, so here in the studio, I have a a special guest, Ryan Holiday, who is the author of a new book. Ryan, do you want to introduce yourself in the book. You just said that you hate introducing yourself,
1: so I'm going to make you do it. Yeah, so uh, I never know what part of myself to introduce first. So, like uh, at parties, I say I'm a marketer so that people don't ask me what about my books or anything. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. right, so tell us about your new book. So I, I wrote a book about Peter Thiel's uh, nine-year conspiracy against Gawker called uh, Conspiracy. Uh, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Anatomy of Intrigue. And it's... Uh, I'm the I'm the only one that teal talked. To. I'm the only one that's talked to both teal and Denton, as far as I know, and then Hulk Hogan, Charles Harder, the elusive Mister A, who was the sort of operative in the conspiracy. And so everyone everyone involved. So it's it's I think the complete story as far as, as I know. So we're gonna get to this book, uh, but so you you have a long
0: history. You've written seven seven books. Is that right? Seven ish, uh, seven ish.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's like that's like. Oh, I think I have like four kids. Well, so I, I have a journal that Got it. that has <clears throat> like a fair m- twenty twenty plus thousand words in it, but. Do you consider it a book? Do you nah. not. I did kind um, of an ebook special. Do you can include that? So let's say seven issues. Let's say seven ish Okay. Um, and you uh, you used to
0: work for American Peril. I did uh, running marketing there, which we of course talk talk about. Uh, you wrote the book. Trust me, I'm lying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anything else? You wait, can you just tell tell everyone. So you live in Austin with a bunch of uh, chickens. I, I live
1: on a on a small farm slash ranch outside of Austin, Texas. With how many animals? more than i can more than i could give you an exact number of but let's say close to two dozen depending on various circumstances <laughs> How, we, we have, so we have longhorns uh have two donkeys uh goats chickens ducks donkeys uh what, yes
0: what do you do with the donkeys
1: so donkeys are <laughs> livestock guarding animals so oh. if you have cows uh or goats and other things you want to have at least one donkey because they hate coyotes and mountain lions, and they keep them away. Got it. Um, and we have mountain lions in Texas. So we, we got one donkey, and then he was lonely, so then we got another donkey. That's, of it's, course, you have to have two donkeys. You can't just I have fa- one. I've, I've now fallen for that trick three times with my wife. I got a goat, <laughs> and then it was lonely. So we have two goats, so we got a donkey, it was lonely. And then now we have two livestock-guarded dogs also for the same reason. So it, this may be uh, more me falling for... For the for animals. Well, speaking
0: that, yeah. of lonely, let, let's jump into your book, Conspiracy. So okay. who, who, is the wor- who is a worse individual, would you say?
1: Peter Thiel or Nick Denton, as far as ethics and morals are concerned? That is a very hard question because I like both of them. I, I actually found them to be both very interesting to talk to. Uh, they sort of both live by their own strange internal compass. So I would rephrase that question and go the central question is who was the bully right so like are not they weren't they both the bully the, and I, I think you could make the argument either way so on the one hand you know when they what i came down I, when when they first meet right when when denton's uh valleywag writes about teal i think denton is the bully denton is m- not as wealthy as teal but certainly much more powerful in 2007 you know, Gawker is doing tens of millions of page views a month. The, he has this enormous megaphone. He, he doesn't really care about who his site's write about, whether there's consequences for those people. It's sort of this unchecked, sort of rebellious media company. I would say he was probably the bully. And for the number of years that he wrote about Teal, he was the bully. And then, you know... Teal was wealthy at the time, but racks up several billion dollars in between. As you do. As one, as one does on, with multiple separate companies, right? Um, Palantir, uh, his investment in Facebook, Founders Fund. So towards the end of it, Teal is objectively much more powerful. Um, and and, and you know, Denton said something to me. He was like, that uh, you know, Teal felt he had something to fear from us seems laughable considering how it turned out but I'm not sure that was necessarily true at the beginning. So let's go back before
0: we get to the story of the big conspiracy and, uh, and, and talk about Gawker and what it was and Nick Denton. And so look, I, you know, I worked in the media industry for a long time and, and I remember going to, you know, parties at Nick Denton's house when Gawker was queen. And, uh, and it was. It seemed like it was this. It was this new era where you could write anything you wanted, uh, and and the people who were in charge of of the places like Gawker that allowed you to write anything you wanted encouraged you to do so. And, yes. and it, it felt like it was. It felt to me, and maybe I'm maybe I'm biased just because I worked at the Times and places like that. But it felt to me like it was incredibly irresponsible. Do you think that that a, do you think that that is correct based on the things that were written on, on Gawker? And B, do you think
1: that Nick Denton believes that now too? Yeah, it, it, <clears throat> irresponsible is probably one word. I, I would say that it was much less structured and must, much less well-organized than basically any other media outlet, which, it allow, which allowed it to do and say things that other people, other outlets would never do. Like the, this, the whole the, the Kogan tape, which they end up running, flashing way forward in the future, uh, which is this uh, a sex tape that ends up bankrupting the company? There's some argument over, you know, some people have said yes, some people have said there, that it's even a matter of dispute that Denton may not have known about the post before it ran, like the the tape that bankrupts his company, that the that the publisher, the editor, doesn't know. That would be like if the Washington Post and the New York Times run the the Pentagon Papers and they it doesn't run up the flagpole. You yes. know, it's just incredible. So it was, it was set up, I think, to be a company where there were no adults in charge to say, like, maybe that's not a bad idea. And but, that captured an incredible energy that made it very popular, but it was also, in some ways, destined to go the direction that it went. But wasn't it, uh, for a long time,
0: Gawker was... Um, you know, it's interesting when you kind of look at it now, right, uh, with the Me Too movement and everything, and uh, y- there are people that used to work at Gawker that are like, we wrote this in, yeah. in X and Y, well, look how, you know, it's such a shame that Gawker's not around anymore. And my response is, yeah, you wrote it, but you wrote so negatively about everything that the things that you wrote that were really important just washed away among,
1: among everything else yeah there's this weird lost cause mythology about gawker now in in a lot of ways and in and and it's been since it was since it ceased to exist it has been vindicated on a few stories including louis c k yeah um but i i I think that is the more interesting provocative question which is when you wrote about this in what was it maybe two thousand ten or eleven, why did it have no impact and it's because no it it, it was a salacious allegation it did get views, yeah. but no one people were able to dismiss it or not take it seriously because they didn't think the full editorial weight was behind that story. Like when the Times ran the story, you're like, they wouldn't publish this if they didn't think it was bulletproof. Whereas when Gawker ran things, you're like, they don't care whether it's right or not. In some ways, yeah, you know, um, they they publish rumors. when 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 your when your slogan is uh, publishing rumor when when your informal slogan is that rumors are a way to get to the truth or that today's gossip is tomorrow's news. People rightfully deduce that a good chunk of your things aren't going to turn out to be true were there uh you you you've spent quite a lot of time with Nick Denton and I,
0: and I know Nick too um were there stories that he told you um about that he didn't publish that 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 crossed a line because it seemed like th- there were
1: very few things that that never got published on that site that i'm I'm sure there were one of the weird thing one of my weirdest interactions with Nick was long before this book happened when gawker was this would have been in maybe like 2011 2010, uh An employee at American Apparel. We had five or six thousand sewers in this building. He just died. He had like a brain so some terrible like freak thing just happened and he died. It had nothing to do with working conditions or like just if you have enough people in this building for long enough, like someone's gonna have a stroke and die. And this guy died and it was sort of very gruesome. He ran into a bathroom and he just he died there. And Gawker wrote this like sort of very insensitive like disturbing story about it. And I ran into Nick at a conference in New York like a couple weeks later. And he was like, "Hey, uh, you're the guy from American Apparel, yeah?" And I said, "Yeah." And, and he said, "You know, I just wanted to say, like, I really didn't like that story, and I thought it was gross, or something like that." And I remember at the time going, "Oh, that's like nice of him. Like, he said this. Like, maybe he's not as heartless as maybe I would have assumed because I didn't know him super well." And then I was telling someone in the some someone else about the story, and they were like, "But he, it, it's his website, yeah. like." So he had this weird kind of artificial distance between. It was like yes, he founded the site and yes, he put it into motion, but I don't think he ever felt like he had to own what they did. That no, it was, I've heard stories like that before. There was a uh, a point in time where I was
0: uh, a little bit of a punching bag for Gawker, and you know, a friend was with Nick, and he's and Nick had said, "Oh, I don't really like the stuff that they're writing about Nick Bilton. It was yeah. like but it's your website. Right.
1: As if he was powerless to do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that was the model where it was like, I'm going to empower all these people to do whatever they want. I'm going to give them a platform and I'm not going to try to put it in this direction or that. I'm not going to put walls around this thing. And you saw this, you know, again, flashing forward when they end up outing the executive at Connie Nast and and Denton was like, okay, that was the line. Like you crossed the line. I'm going to enforce this line. I'm going to unpublish the post. There was like a full on rebellion inside this. That was like the first time, that that happened. So, and people were, the people that worked there were like, I quit on the spot. So, so
0: was that a, a moment where, it, it where Nick Denton's morality came, came out of a shell that had been kind
1: of hidden for a long time? I think it was both. I think it was, it was on the one hand, he was growing as a person. He, I think he's married at this point. He's sort of become a more of the world, let's say, rather than the outsider objecting to the world. And then also the reality of this hundred million dollar lawsuit that's hanging over his head and the need to uh, rein in their image a little bit, they intersect and that's why he makes that decision. So let's switch to, let's go
0: to to, uh, my other, uh, one of my favorite people, Peter Thiel, uh, the other main character in in this book. Um, Is Peter a monster? because i because I, so. I, I get the impression well okay maybe monsters not the right the right question it, is does he care about the uh the effects of the decisions that he makes and the the actions that he takes about how they
1: will impact the rest of the world i think in this case not only is that true but i think he thinks that he helped the world. Like I think he, I think when he said that this was the greatest philanthropic thing that he's done. And what you're talking about is him destroying down Gawker, Gawker yes. having it completely killed. And uh, I think, I, I don't think he was being ironic or facetious in any way. I think he hundred percent believes that. And what, do you think he believes that about helping Donald Trump become president? That's more complicated. I think that's much more complicated, <laughs> and I don't know if I've total. I, I think it's a few things. And, and I think he is a guy that has a lot of conflicting emotions. Uh, Eric Weinstein, who's the head of Teal Capital, uh, told me that at any given time, there's a Mexican standoff in Peter's head be, between completely conflicting ideas. Yeah. And I think that sort of embodies it. So he's this libertarian that backs Donald Trump. He's a libertarian who destroys a media outlet. He cares about online privacy, and then he runs Palantir. like Palantir, which is a data mining company. You know, like <clears throat> it, and he he runs Facebook, but he hates social media. You know, so it's it, not runs, but he's a big he's investor on the board of Facebook. Of safety, yeah, yeah, and, and then he hates, uh, you know, he hates social media. So I think I think there's these conflicting sort of moving positions inside his head. Um, but but I, I I think I think he thought it was I think he. I think he comes from an earnest place. He just he comes at it in a way that's so different than almost anyone else that sometimes it feels like he's this Bond villain. He definitely comes across as the Bond villain with the, the, the cat on his lap, you know, and the, the hairless cat. I've never seen him with a cat or really any animal, <laughs> come to think of it. but I, And I think, he, I think he also has come to enjoy... The rep, I think he he, does. He likes likes reputation. I think he likes it because it's the, like, you know, all the other Silicon Valley billionaires are obsessed with virtue signaling and making that I'm a billionaire, but I'm not like the other billionaires. Right. Like I care about, you know, like, and what Peter's like, I'm a billionaire and I'm a monster and don't fuck with me. I think he's much more of, I, I, I wrote a piece that he's much more of the, uh, late 19th century, early 20th century billionaire type. That's like. I have the money, that money is power, and I'm going to use that power. I'm not, not that I'm a bad person, I'm gonna try to hurt people, but like, I, there's a reason I have this power, and it's because I'm the best person to have that power, and I'm, I'm not afraid to utilize it. And I think that's, in some ways, that's what this is. Like, he, he's, he said, No one could do anything about this but me, and so that's why I should do it. All right, so um, I, w- I want to get to the actual story
0: of how this all went down, uh, but let's just, let's just bring in actually my favorite character, okay. uh, Hulk Hogan. Yes. Uh, uh, Terry. He, Terry like Blay. Reading the book, um, I actually felt sorry for him uh, in many respects. Is that, was that intentional on your part? or I did try to present it radically
1: different than how I'd seen everyone else present it.
0: And how had everyone else presented it in your opinion?
1: Well, that he wasn't a real person. That he's like, because he has this <clears throat> absurd profession, and that we'd seen him on a reality TV show, and because he was rich and famous, there's no, it was impossible for him to be humiliated, and that he couldn't have had a legitimate motivation for being upset about this. Well, that's interesting, because
0: there's an irony there that, that Gawker itself created that kind of mentality that, yeah. that because you're rich and you're famous then you, you don't have a right to have a, have
1: emotions and feelings and just shut up and keep your money and let us write about you. And I think you could say the same thing about Peter Thiel. The fact that he's a billionaire doesn't mean that he doesn't want to be outed. And, yeah. and the fact that other, most people know doesn't mean that he might have drawn some line in the sand where he wanted that secret to end. You know? So I think that that is an interesting part about Gawker's model is that it... And, and when I interviewed people there, they sort of confirmed this, is that there really was this idea that we shouldn't care about other people's feelings. And there, there definitely, that definitely is part of the journalistic profession. You can't, be, you can't only write articles that people are going to feel good about. But there's a form of power in being able to shape the public narrative about people, and I think with that power comes some responsibility. So one of the questions I have is, is when you look at that concept of we shouldn't
0: care about people's feelings – I have a lot of friends who worked for Gawker Media at one point in time, uh, whether for Gawker itself or even yeah. Valleywag or gizmodo and, and and they are good people yeah. I know people I know people who work there who are legitimately not good people yes uh, um, and we all know who those people are um, but when when someone was inside the institution, did they was there this kind of echo chamber of oh I just wrote about you know this person doing x y or z or this person's sexual preference or something like that I did the right thing by
1: exposing that or how did it how did it shape itself I I think culture is destiny in some ways right and so the the culture of the company the economics of the business and I very much relate to this having been in marketing and worked for a number of controversial people is Your job kind of becomes this game, and your job is to get good at the game, right? Not to question the rules of the game. Do you know what I mean?
0: Kind of,
1: not really. I mean, and I I think this is. I'm not. I'm not. Again, I'm not rationalizing. I'm trying to. I, I think I'm trying to put myself in those shoes, and it. This is especially easy to fall prey to when you're 22 years old and you're just trying to make your yeah. mark.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting. I remember when I, the, I first started at the New York Times and uh, your first week there you go to these these meetings with the board and the executive editors and so on and these lunches and, and you get to ask all these questions. And I remember Bill Keller was editor-in-chief at the time and we went to this lunch in the boardroom on the 14th floor and he said... Uh, looked at oh, the, the 24 new reporters and employees, and he said, you know, there's one thing I want to say when you're writing about other people. He said, I always believe that in journalism school, they should, they should tell people that you cannot write about someone else until you have been written about yourself. Yeah. And I feel like one of the big problems with not just Gawker's model, but blogging and social media is that that is not the case, that the 22-year-old who's fresh out of college and wants to make a name for themselves or not even out of yeah. college... Uh, is like, I'm just going to pick a yeah. fight with the biggest person I can.
1: Well, I think that's, the fe- that's a feature and not a bug of Gawker's business model. And like, <clears throat> as they were trying to, you know, what Gawker really did was go and steal market share from traditional media in a lot of ways. And they did that by doing the kinds of stories that the other media wasn't willing to touch. And I think part of that strategy involved selecting ambitious, somewhat angry, resentful young people and saying like, I'm judging you based on how much traffic you get and how many scoops you get. Let's see what you can do. And, <laughs> and, and that leads to, hey, Peter Thiel is totally gay people. It leads to a story like that. And it leads to a story of like, watch this Hulk Hogan sex tape that, by the way, he has said very loudly, was recorded without his consent. And we're not going to go to these people beforehand and ask them about it. We're just going to publish it. And then if you want to leave a comment at the bottom of the article, you're welcome to. Do you know what I mean? And a number of other st- like. Dozens and dozens and dozens of stories like that. They also did lots of great journalism, lots of fearless journalism, but uh, there wasn't there wasn't those meetings that you were just talking about that imbued them with a sense of responsibility or conservative. Like there wasn't a brand they were protecting. There was a brand they were trying to build, and the reputation of that brand was. We say the things other people don't say. Do you think that the,
0: the model of Gawker? So, you know, it's very it's interesting when you kind of think about power, um, it, is, it acts in a very similar way to electrical power. Is, There's is not more that is created, it is just distributed differently, right? Sure. And Gawker clearly had an impact on the media landscape. Um, do you think it was a negative one or a positive one?
1: Well, I bet it, it – I think it loosened things up, right? And it cert- – There, Gawker was right in 2000 uh, – was it 2004 when it, it's created? There was uh, – it was 2002, 2004. I'm forgetting the dates. But exactly. But when Gawker is created, there is a whole side of things that no one in the media – that everyone in the media knows but nobody talks about. Like um, – you know, like the, the role of, let's say the role of PR people in shaping the story or certain open secrets about, you know, various people. Um, and, and, and Gawker is sort of like, well, we're not, we're going to call bullshit on things. And that was clearly very refreshing to the audience or it wouldn't have attracted the people that it did very quickly. Um, or even in Gizmodo, it's like, Hey, we, we just fucking love gadgets, yeah. and and like that's the that's the voice we're gonna go at with this. Like that was also refreshing and new. It wasn't stodgy and wasn't Consumer Reports esque, you know. Uh, and so it unleashed a lot of energy. And maybe as a whole, that part was good. But then it also created, I think, a a, a more tabloidy sensibility. Well, and, and Denton went, you know, he, he went to the the school of Fleet
0: Street. Journalism in in London, right, and that had some sort of
1: impact on this. I th- I think Gawker's main innovation, is, it, and this is probably it's too it's too much to put solely on them, but it was also an expanded definition of like who is newsworthy, hmm. right? And so it it wrote about people that the New York Times wouldn't have written about unless they really did something enormously important, right? And as a result, uh, you know, made some people important and famous and then ruined some other people's lives. The, I
0: remember the times people, you would walk by someone's desk, the New York times, and, and they would be looking at Gawk and you'd be like, what are you, what are you doing? And they'd be like, I'm just making sure I'm not on it today. Yeah, and right. it was like, that was that, I mean, I'm sure that a big percentage of the traffic was people
1: looking to see if their name was was going to be in a headline. I totally think so. And and so when I'm saying that in 2007, like, who was more powerful, Thiel or Denton, no one was talking about Peter Thiel that no, way. No. Um, nobody even really knew who P- – unless you were a hardcore Silicon Valley investor, you had no idea who he was. So let's go to that moment in
0: 2007. So um, so Gawker publishes this this kind of just whatever blog post that Peter Thiel is totally gay. Yeah. Um, and – how how where is Peter Thiel when he sees that? What does he think when he sees that? Is he mortified?
1: Is he upset? Is he? I so I thought that this would be this moment that was like seared into his memory, right? Like you know, I was sitting down in my apartment, and the fact that he didn't remember it, uh, the where he was, maybe made me think that part of it was not an exaggeration, but part of it was, it was it was less that, and I think more that it was like his rude introduction to a series of Gawker articles, right? So, and it, it wasn't actually just the article. It was also, you know, Denton's speculation at the bottom of the article. He would say it wasn't the article. It was the Nick Denton comment where Nick goes like, okay, we just broke this story basically. But the real interesting question is why didn't he want people to know? And I think that was Teal. Being introduced to the idea like, oh, I'm going to be a public figure and people are going to write things about me. I'm not going to control them. A lot of them are not going to be true. I'm not going to like it. I think I think it was this sort of introduction to a thing that other people already sort of knew existed, but uh, he was not familiar with. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, but, so from Nick's
0: perspective, because uh, Nick was very clearly aware of this piece. He yeah. commented on it.
1: He and pushed for it. He pushed for yeah. it.
0: Uh, um, Nick's gay, does yeah. that play a role in wanting to out someone else i mean I, I would imagine i mean i've I have uh friends that, that told me tell me stories about how they came out and how difficult it was and and I mean Nick has to have understood that
1: yeah and the writer was also gay yeah yeah, and yeah so i think I think there was a little bit of uh like why maybe why does he get to keep it a secret, and we don't uh you know Denton said to me that uh he's always been attracted to black guys and so there was it was always a much more obvious thing does that make sense like like if he was around uh, uh I think he what his, his point was that uh it, his ident- gay identity was harder to hide than it was for Peter who could sort of be somewhat camouflaged in the silicon valley
0: yeah but i it i mean so do you as someone who spent time with all these people, do you do you see their justification? Like no Owen Thomas and Nick Denton's? Or? I,
1: I, I see somewhat of a justification. I think what's I think if it was justified, the tone and the style of the article was much less justified. There's no sources in the article. Yeah. There's a bunch of, you know, sort of unsourced speculation as to why he's, he's gay. And it's just so glib and mean. Yeah. It's not like, hey, this is probably hard for him. He doesn't want people to know. But we think he should know for the we think people should know for the following. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like this is a fun joke. And the I mean, 2007, we should go back in time. I mean, like California process, uh, passes Prop 8 like several months after this, right? So it's not as it's not as if Peter was being outed into today's world where we are at least mu- still not where we probably should be, but much more accepting of this thing than than we were in 2007. I mean, uh, Obama doesn't even come out in favor of gay marriage for several years. So, okay.
0: So, so going back to this, this moment, so, so he doesn't remember it. Yeah. uh, uh, Peter Thiel doesn't remember it, but, but he still has this 10 year. Yeah.
1: I think he's mad. Moment where he's like, I am going to destroy this. He's mad about it and he tries to think, what can I do about it? Right. And so I think he, Peter is this kind of guy that just sort of talks about things over dinner. You've been to one of Peter's dinners before. Yeah, I, I, will never, I will never go back to a Peter dinner. He so, does not actually serve food at the dinner. But. Yes, yes, I remember <laughs> reading about this. So he, uh, he's the kind of guy that likes to toss things yeah. around over dinner. And I think this was this sort of repeated dinner conversation. Like, why are they able to do this? Has anyone else had a similar, and he's sort of stewing about it. And I think the fact that so many people were like, Yeah, that's just what they do. Nothing you can do about it. I think you know in a way that's what activates him to be so interested in about it. Because he likes those problems. So for him it's the challenge of of, of it's, is it
0: partially the challenge of questioning, hey, should I try to destroy this thing? Yes. Or is it more let me see if I can destroy this thing?
1: I think thing? it's a, I think it's both. I think it's both. And and then once he embarks on it, okay, what, what would what would be the most successful way to do it? How could you do it? How could you get away with it? You know? and, and then, of course, they also continue to write about him. Like many different They out his boyfriend. Um, you know, they, they speculate about his hedge fund. You know, he writes that uh, embarrassing piece in the, uh, for the Cato Institute uh, where he, you know, he talks about whether women should have had the right to vote or not. You know, he, he's, his, from 2007 to, let's say, 2009, his public reputation is not great. But isn't that his...
0: With the exception of being outed as gay, isn't a lot of his public reputation a
1: result of his own actions? Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that it's not. But I'm saying that the the, the person that he is identifying with that is Gawker. Because Gawker's the one driving a lot of it. Right? Like, he he might be saying the thing. He might be stepping in it. But Gawker's the one that's jumping on the opportunity to write about it. And I think I think... Teal thinks that those sort of public musings and sort of kicking things around and say, Teal is, I I asked, I asked Teal, I said, like, you know, Elon Musk wants to put a man on Mars. That's what he thinks he's like put on the earth to do. What do you think you were put on the earth to do? Or what's your mission? And he's like, my mission is opposing political correctness. And I said, well, that doesn't seem like, you know, such an important thing. And, <laughs> and he actually gave me a pretty sort of strenuous uh, justification for why. Which politi- was? That, that politically incorrect ideas is where innovation comes from. And that questioning things and having the freedom and the space to make mistakes and not to be sort of, uh, uh, you know, crucified for them is, is where, is what makes Silicon Valley what it is. It I mean, wasn't. That what Gawker was being politically incorrect. His view is that Gawker is actually incredibly is actually an enforcer of political correctness. In that, if you say something weird, Gawker makes fun of you. If you believe something strange, Gawker will make fun of you. If you have a secret, Gawker will find it. If you fail, Gawker will laugh at you for failing. There was sort of this like, stay at home, don't try, because you don't want to. Beyond Gawker kind of thing. Sounds awfully like social media today. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> which which Peter clearly hates. Right. And sits, you know, on a pile oh, of billions of dollars, dollars because of it. Because of it, exactly. Yeah. So one of the things that you talk about in this book
0: and the title of the book is repeatedly is is the fact that it's a conspiracy. Yeah.
1: But isn't it just revenge? Those don't seem like mutually exclusive ideas to me. I mean, the Count of Monte Cristo conspires to get his revenge. Uh, I, I think a conspiracy is a means to accomplishing something, good or bad, uh, and the motivations can be: this person is a tyrant who is keeping my people down, or it can be: uh, I don't like the way that person looked at me, and I'm going to ruin them. And so,
0: as as uh, Peter Thiel is is. Plotting this conspiracy, if you will. Yeah. Um, is he involved on a like day to day basis? I mean, I I, yeah. I, 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 I saw you know in the book that you know the the when the verdict came through for the case where Gawker had lost because of the sex tape. Um, that Teal's is in a, a hotel room by himself in Japan, and, and the phone rings. And is how how involved is he in the? Th- the mental headspace that it
1: requires to kind of come up with this, this plan. I think if we're, if we're like looking at his schedule, we're probably talking a couple hours a week, Yeah, which is actually from, from what I was able to find very similar to how he operates as a entrepreneur and a business person. Right. Uh, he, he's not necessarily involved day to day in Palantir, but he put this thing in motion. He assembles the team. He sort of comes up with the big or grand idea And then he's kind of this sort of godfathery figure that people come to and go, oh, what should we do about this? What do you think about that? You know, so he's much more, I think in this, he, he saw, he has the, he wants to do something. He's the, got the resources to do something and he's kind of waiting for the person he can bet on to solve this problem for him in the way that he might, oh, we should have a border wall. Who should I invest in to make that a reality? Do you think that um, when it all was done, that he felt happy? That he felt vindicated? I forget which podcast there was, but someone asked someone once asked him if he was happy, and it sort of he was sort of flustered by the question. So sort of, what is happiness? <laughs> uh, you know, like, and like a, an answer. I you read would, about it once on yeah, the and internet. A, and, but no, but more like the kind of answer. Like if you ask me, I go like. Yeah, most of the time, you know, like yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't like try to attack, not attack, but I wouldn't try to dis- dissemble the question. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so I, I, I do think there's a, an element of loneliness in Teal's life. Oh, like, that's, oh
0: yeah we're, yeah. we're
1: totally about to get yeah. there. I have, okay. I have that question. So, so I'm not sure happiness is the right word, but I think there was an immense intellectual satisfaction and pride in what he was able to do because not only did no one think he could do it, but no one even knew that he had done it, and so when it came to you know the fact
0: that he the the news broke that he he was involved, uh, it, that wasn't planted by Teal. It no. was. It would he have? Do you think eventually at the very end he would have come out and pulled the mask off and said, "Ha ha, it was me all
1: along." <laughs> well. Clearly, he knew that it might someday come out because he makes a lot of decisions. You know, he said, like, I believe these things have an expiration date. And so, like, it's hard to give him credit for what he didn't do. But he clearly could have done something much more diabolical or evil given the resources that he had. What would right. he have done to I mean, kill people? Like, I what mean, he owns about- a, a defense company that basically finds where everyone is all the time. You know, like yeah. he, he could have could have just said, like, let's see what Palantir can do about this situation. Yeah. You know, he could have hired private detectives, could have hired Russian hackers. You know, there's any number of things that he could have done that he doesn't do. He does it through the legal system. Um, but so I think he I think he thought, okay, this might come out someday. I want to be able to justify what I did. And then uh, – there, but there wasn't much in the way of a plan. Like, like his New York Times op-ed, I said, like, so did you have that pre-written, like ready to go? And he's like, no, we just didn't, we didn't think. But at the same time, the people uh, near him said that he had just started talking about it so much to people that it was inevitable that it would get out. So the Freudian explanation is that he wanted to get so- caught. So he when I first met, I remember
0: when I first met Nick Denton. It must have been I don't know, two thousand eight or so, two thousand nine. And he it was at his loft in. I actually no, I met him a little earlier at Gawker. I'd gone yeah. to see a friend, and and then I went to a, a Nick Denton party. And and I remember he was. I mean, this was like the height of Gawker's power. Yeah. There was someone who had who had recently quit had told me that Nick had come up to them on their last day and and said before you leave i want you to burn one of your friends or something like that you know it was yeah, like yeah. there was an there was an encouragement of of do something bad
1: and his apartment feels like this evil lair it's oh it totally felt and yeah. i
0: remember <laughs> i remember shaking his hand and, and thinking to myself oh my god i, I feel like i just met voldemort yeah. like there he was had a like, kingmaker feel to him yeah, yeah. Th- there was a kingmaker feel and there was a there was there was i ne- I, I didn't feel a single ounce of empathy uh, today you know, if you see Nick, he is a changed man, maybe yeah. it's because he got married, maybe because of what happened or so on and so forth but but when I have spent time with Peter Teal, and I haven't spent a lot of time with him but but uh, you know um but I kind of have the same feeling uh that teal has changed no, that teal oh. hasn't changed the teal oh. is that yeah person. sure sure, uh, and he hasn't gone through this change yet are there two questions so one is are they just kind of the same person on the different side of the coin? That's the first question, and the second question is you know is teal just lonely and sad, and like he just comes across that way
1: yeah there's uh, there's something that teal told me that a friend had told him he said uh choose your enemies wisely because you become just like them it's the fa- it's like the famous uh when hunting monsters, you yes. be careful; you will become one. So there's an element of, I think, that timelessness in in this story. Certainly, um, you know, Teal Teal just got married. Uh, I, I, I think he's I think he's happier and nicer than people think that he is. But there is there's not that much character in getting what you want, right? But losing everything you have is inherently a humbling sort of. Introspective that's a good experience. Point. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, uh, I'm not sh- like AJ for his part is I think very different than the AJ that I remembered. He's sober he's, for the people. Listening. AJ is the one who ran the story that that bankrupts Gawker, um, and that's because he went through an incredibly difficult, sort of humbling, shitty experience. Yeah, whether whether they he or Nick brought it on themselves is secondary. It is a separate point then, like, to have to rent out that apartment that you and I have both been in to cover your mortgage because you're, everything is locked up in bankruptcy court, that that forces a quiet moment, you know, where you yeah. have to think about things. Yeah. And to to see your business shut. Yeah. And, yeah. and Teal didn't – I mean, what Teal went through was he was a somewhat private person. Now he's a very well-known person. He has more power than he probably ever thought he might have. He's feared and you know loathed by there's not that there's not that much introspection in that experience um yeah, so that that's sort of why I think that they're in these different places
0: uh let's go to teal and um Trump for a minute yeah uh, uh did you guys
1: talk about that a lot I actually was uh i one of the interviews I had with him was in his office at the Presidio right after the access Hollywood tapes, but before he made. Like before, he doubles down on the bet, and I remember leaving that meet. Like I was like, dude, I was like, dude, you gotta, this is insanity. Like you gotta walk away from this, right? What does he say? And and you know, he made some uh, some interesting arguments that were uh, off the record. But like, I left thinking like, oh, he sees this. Like there's no way he's gonna, and and then he ends up making the bet. So I think part I one theory I have is that uh, first off, I think he just loathes Hillary Clinton. You gotta, mm-hmm. he, he's been uh conservative libertarian republican type his whole life and he is of that sort of exact age group that just hates hillary clinton yeah you know he hates the clinton so i think that was part of it and he said this most recently he's like uh in that new york times profile where he's like look i don't think donald trump's doing an amazing job but like it's better than hillary clinton (laughs) and like i think only i mean that's like something my dad would say Mm -hmm. you know um but uh I think th- I think part of it was like he, as an investor, he was maybe he's like, look, I put in this million dollars. If I gave a million dollars to Hillary, what would I get? Basically nothing, right? And if I put a million dollars in the Trump campaign and he loses, no one will remember it. It won't be a big deal. But if I win, what's the value of that option? And what is the value of that
0: option? They don't well, talk anymore, right? I mean, no, but he
1: does oversee the transition in a lot of ways, and a lot of people that were loyal or worked for Teal now have. Influential positions inside the government, and it you know he 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 runs a massive defense company has that now got be... a huge contract from the government yeah, yeah, and I think you could it's hard to argue that the status quo hasn't been massively disrupted and isn't now in a state of flux, which is i think something that he thinks is important
0: Thiel always once said um and i 'm sure he said it more than once, but he said that you know in his mind that the you know the ideal world would be that that uh, the society we live in today is broken and, and is destroyed, and that out of the ashes we build something new. What? The two two things to that is one is like, well, wouldn't a lot of people be hurt in yes. the in the destruction of society? We can't all move to New Zealand when yeah, that happens. We can't all move. To, and and the other thing is, um, I mean, the, when he says things like that, does he think about the fact that that people's lives are affected by these comments and these decisions
1: and? And someone like Trump in the White House? Well, you know, he made that defense of Trump that, you know, people take Trump literally and not seriously. Which I think is maybe the stupidest thing that's ever come out of his mouth, but keep but, going. But I, I would say that maybe he would say that that's the response to his comments, that he doesn't, you know, that, that, that he would say it sounds that way because you're taking it literally, but I'm, I'm more having the intellectual sort of debate like You know what I mean? I think he's, he's somewhat <clears throat> professorial about how he talks about these things, as if he's not doing them in the real world. Well, that's,
0: that's the thing that's so ironic, is that he is saying things that he's like, oh, I'm just going to say these things because I want to say them and hear my, you know, the reaction to them. And they have a massive impact on people, even yeah. though he doesn't realize that. And in the same respect,
1: the thing that he destroyed, Gawker, was doing the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean... And then you also throw in, you know, it's like, okay, you're somewhat opposed to cyberbullying. That's what you think, uh, you know, Gawker is. And then you have basically the number one cyberbully in the world now uh, with Trump. Or you have the empowerment of the alt-right. There's a lot of... Now, is is it that his, that, you
0: know, you and I and a million other people think about this when we think about Peter Thiel, does he not think about it?
1: <sighs> That's a... I mean that would be a wonderful question for him. Can you, uh, can you ask him and come I, back I sh- on the show? I should. I should. <laughs> no, no. I, I absolutely will. I, 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 think he, I think he thinks his job. Uh, someone, someone described uh, Teal to me as the world's richest applied philosopher, and so I think he is talks about these things philosophically. He, it's like he has these different modes. He's like Peter, the power broker, investor, billionaire, and then Peter the Stanford you know uh, was on an academic track I'm going to be a professor or a pundit or something and it sometimes I don't think those two sides of him are fully integrated and that's where you get comments like the you know how enfranchisement for women has been bad for libertarians like i think that's like an objective fact i guess right like there's not a lot of female libertarians yeah uh and uh than not thinking like, well, what is the larger implication of that remark? It's that you're making it sound like female w- women shouldn't have the right to vote. You know what I mean? It's like it's not. It's like a very of the moment.
0: But there's also, I mean, it's the, there are these disjointed things. It's for someone so fucking smart, there are these things that he does that are you're like, what the? What are you thinking? Like for example, he hates Hillary Clinton, yeah. right? The whole reason he goes after Gawker is because they out him. It's clearly – being gay is clearly something that is important to him. It, it, it's, you know, it yes. came up at Stanford and so on. But yet Mike Pence is the right. biggest homophobe that has ever walked into the White House. And he's OK supporting
1: that? Yeah, yeah. And, and and maybe maybe it's for him that he doesn't want these things to be central to his identity. Like, like – uh, <clears throat> that he he thinks it's more high-minded to not think about that. Hmm. He's like, like but but you could you could ask as as just as many sort of like point out just as many contradictions and conflicts inside a Nick Denton. And I think that's what makes them these fascinating figures is that they're they're sort of both they have this profession that's somewhat disaligned with their beliefs. They're they They're sort of thoughtful and considerate. And then they have these professions that are, it's perhaps that's why it was inevitable that they would find themselves in conflict with each other, because that's easier to be in conflict with each other than to deal with the conflict inside themselves. So when you first, before you started writing this book, um, uh, did you have
0: an afterwards, did you as a person kind of grow from a moral perspective?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I went in thinking that like what happened to Gawker was very much deserved. Like that not went into it. That's what that was my as an outsider, not having talked to any of the people. That was uh, my initial view. And I think I came out the other side much more mixed in that regard. Um, in the respect of it should have been closed down. Well, and- that it was that it was bad that it had, it, it had made a lot of sort of very reckless decisions that it was not probably great for the world. And yet, maybe the death penalty is too far. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that like, so there's this moment right before the jury goes to deliberation, where where one of the jurors like asks the judge for, he says, you know, is community service an option? Like, are we allowed to 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 uh, assign the, any of these parties community service? And the judge says, unfortunately, that's not an op- that's not it's, this is not that kind of case. And like, I would agree with that, like. Un- it, what if there had been some sort of other option? Yeah, and and so that's sort of that was that was I I came I came away much more empathetic to actually to both sides than I think I thought I was. Um.
0: All right. So uh, let's just end. Uh, I want to move to to okay. the media world a little bit because you've been in it for so long. But um, what was two two last questions okay. on, on the on the Gawker conspiracy stuff? Um, before we do, uh, what was your
1: Biggest holy shit moment in the reporting. Well, just this existence of the the Mister A character, the the operative who pitches Teal, the sort of legalistic approach against Gawker, who does most of the day to day work. The idea that uh, this story, which everyone had reported on like extensively, that it wasn't a, it wasn't that people didn't know his identity. It's that people didn't know that he existed. existed. That I thought that was insane. And then. Uh, AJ sent me a number of emails that he had sent in 2015 as they first approached the trial that was like, guys, we have to settle this. Like, we are going to lose. Like, do not. So like, we were talking about growing. Like, I very much empathize. I thought he like was terrible on the stand. Who? AJ. AJ, yeah, yeah. And then so it changes the context of that to realize that he was like, guys, please don't put me on the stand. Like, this isn't going to go well. They're like, no, no, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and so th- those were two, two big moments. Did Nick believe that he could win? Well, I think he, f- I think he, uh, I think he assumed it would get settled. Like, I think, I don't think he thought that it mattered whether he could win or not. And then there's a moment after the verdict where, uh, AJ tells me that, um, you know, Denton pats him on the leg and says, don't worry, we'll appeal. But they were never going to be able to appeal. I mean, the, the buy-in for appealing in Florida was $50 million. It was just never going to happen. So their legal strategy of like, oh, we'll appeal this and appeal this and appeal this was like incredibly unlikely from the beginning. It seems that everyone involved in the
0: story, of the, the original 2007 story, saw their lives
1: completely destroyed except for Owen Thomas. How did he get yeah. away? Well, that was an interesting part. I think it goes... I mean, if Teal was really just angry about the article and really just wanted to hold the person responsible who'd outed him, I think... Owen would be living a very different life.
0: I right I, I almost, I, I was literally ready one day to open up my my computer and and like see a picture of like Owen, you know, tied up and tarred and feathered somewhere. Yeah. Like why did? How did? Did you ever ask Teal why he let him go?
1: Yeah, I think he 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 began to see Owen as just a pawn of Nick Denton, and it's and it someone back- AJ too. Yes, yes, but AJ had, uh you know, done something. Worse than what Owen had done to Teal. Got it. Um, all right, so last question on the book. Okay.
0: Uh, why did these guys talk to you? I mean, Peter Teal is very selective about who he talks yeah. to. Uh, uh, Nick can be somewhat reclusive
1: too when it comes to the media. Yeah. Why did they both decide to talk to you? So Teal reached out to me because uh, I'd written about Gawker before, and I, I wrote something critical after the verdict. So I think he at least thought, oh, this is one person out of basically every. He just other- reached out to you out of the. He just sent the me an book. email. Did yeah, you said, had you known him before? Or? I'd been to a dinner like you. I, I, did I they to, serve food at the dinner? Or this was more of a dinner party with like snacks and stuff. There was no. There was no yeah, food. That's, uh, that's, I did meet Daniel Ellsberg at this party, which I, is interesting. I, I met Daniel at a party there too. Yeah, there, were we at the same party? Maybe, maybe it was. Was this a, a book party?
0: I, there was a book. I went to a book party at at Peter Thiel's house. What was with the book? Dan, it was Daniel Ellsberg's book, and then Michael my, Ellsberg's book. Michael Ellsberg, sorry. Yeah. Okay. We were yeah. at the same party. Yeah, and then uh, and then I went to a a salon. Okay. Uh, and as I wrote in that piece, I was so excited that I was going to go to this dinner salon at right. Peter Thiel's. I didn't <laughs> eat the entire day, and when I got there, there was like nothing more than like two pieces of sushi and. Uh, and a couple of uh, You edamame. should launch a
1: conspiracy to get even. Well, I, I, I,
0: So Teal doesn't
1: yeah. eat. He's like a fruitarian or something, right? Uh, the party I went, he ate an enormous steak. But, oh, well, uh, maybe he was a fruitarian when I went over. Yeah. Uh, no, I actually, I've eaten with him a couple of times. He has like a chef that travels. Yeah, California. I've heard about the but, chef. But... Um, yep. <laughs> Uh, so I'd met him before. He didn't really remember the meeting, but I guess he'd read my writing before, and so he sent me an email and he said, "I enjoyed your writing. We should get together in New York sometime to talk about the MBTO, which was his acronym for Gawker, the Manhattan-based terrorist organization." <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so the uh, MBTO. That that conversation was ongoing, and then Nick reached out to me because he'd read my other, he'd read some of my other writings and my other books, my philosophical stuff. Which I guess makes sense when you go through what he went through. So I had these sort of two different relationships going on at the same time, and then when I kind of was like, "Hey, I'm talking to Peter," then they then they were both locked in because like they didn't want the other one to be the dominant. Have they ever met? Yes. Well, you wrote about this. Uh, they did meet once at the at the. Between the verdict and the settlement, they met twice. Where? I forget. I see. Um, I can't even remember what
0: I've, what I've written yes. about myself. <laughs> uh, so, so,
1: so they met once in San Francisco and once in New York. Um, they were connected by a, a tech mutual tech friend. Got it. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, sit yeah, down. It. Yes, yes, it's Yeah, yep. I mean, I think in, uh, it's one of the strangest mm-hmm. moments in probably Silicon Valley history that these two enemies are in the same room. It reminds room me of the
0: moment where. Um, uh, steve jobs and eric schmidt when schmidt was running google where they they met for a coffee yes on this just happened to be on the street with a photographer that was standing there and yeah uh,
1: there was no i think it's a, in a hotel elevator in san francisco william randolph hearst and orson wells bump into each other during yeah. the citizen kane battle um so i think it's like that as well but yeah so they, they've met uh once or twice like Trump and Hillary
0: right before the election. Um, yeah. All right, so let's move on to, okay. to the media world. Um, so you've written about uh, the fact that you have manipulated the media many, many times. Um, do, you, do you think that, you know, I've talked a lot about on the show and in general that, that um, I think that the, the media world we live in today is... Is not helping democracy yes. for the most part. You think that there are, of course, exceptions. You know, but they are far and few between. You know, the big stories that the Times and the Post and BuzzFeed and places like that break once in a while. And um, but there are uh, not once in a while. You know, on a daily basis, I guess. But but there are so many outlets from Fox to even to you know stuff in the mainstream media and these outlets that just seems like it is it is driving more division that it is placed by PR people that it's, yeah. you know, all these things. How does this c- continue to go on? And, and are we, go-
1: is this going to backfire at some point? Yeah. You can argue we have like an, if we have an obesity problem, we have like an information obesity problem. Like we just consume way more news and information than we could possibly need. And, and most so of much it's, of it is deeply unhealthy. Yeah. It's deeply unhealthy and deeply wrong. Yeah, of course. And it's, it's agenda driven or, I mean, you're just having incredible amounts of people competing for a finite amount of attention and that creates incentives to be
0: shitty. And so how do you think this kind of plays out? I mean, you've been covering the media world and working in it on and off for what a decade now. I mean, how, how does this, does this continue to go down this rabbit
1: hole of, of sludgy crap or does it, well, when I wrote, when I wrote, trust me, I'm lying. So I wrote in 2011, it came out in 2012. The, the point was like, okay, look, I've worked with these authors and this controversial fashion brand. And I've, you know, done stunts to get on Gawker and things like this. I was like, you know, this is not, this is not great. But like, I'm not using it for particularly bad ends, like, so right, like books or t-shirts. But like someone could really do something like messed up with this and i don't think i was a i don't think I, I would never pretend that i was seeing this far in the future but like this is way worse than i thought it was going to get and it's probably getting worse i mean i think we have a media system that is basically designed to be manipulated or we have a public that because of its dependency on the media is very easy to manipulate i think places like russia figure this out that's like hey invading a country is really hard but what if we what if we post some memes on Facebook and put some advertising dollars behind it? We can make them so divided that we don't need to invade them. Give us
0: some of the. Can you tell uh, listeners that may not have read? Trust me, I'm lying. Can you tell a couple of the
1: stories of 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 bad well, media things you did? I mean, maybe uh, you don't see them yeah, as bad. No, but... no. I mean, I, I think most of them were not bad. They were just illustrating sort of loopholes. But like uh, when Trust Me I'm Lying came out, uh, so we signed the book deal. And then I told Portfolio, who's our mutual publisher, I was like, look, I'll I'll handle the announcement. And so uh, I doubled the size of the announcement, uh, or the deal, and I put that out there. And then I I sent a link to that to a writer at Gawker uh, from an anonymous email. I just said, hey, um, there's no way he could have gotten this money unless it was a celebrity tell-all about the people that he's worked with. And like five seconds later... It's like a Gawker story. Like, is this the first sort of Dove Charney American Apparel tell-all? And that story still exists. I mean, like, you know, many years later, it's still there. And, and was
0: your point that uh, you wanted to make sure people knew you were writing a book, or like, what's well,
1: both? On the one hand, it's like, okay, I got to announce this book, and I want—I would like to prove what's in the book. Like, I'd like to show how this actually works. And then my larger point is that nobody fact-checks anything anymore, uh, outside a handful of sort of. Uh, media outlets that are like clinging, clinging on for dear life. Um, I did another thing for the book. Um, I, I, I hate, um, help a reporter out, um, the service that basically connects, uh, sources with lazy journalists. Yeah. Uh, and so I just pretended to be an expert about a bunch of things, uh, including, uh, and was in, included, uh, was quoted in the New York Times about vinyl records, which I'm not an expert about. <laughs> uh, and and so, so, again, the point was uh, you know, I mean, I'm not like making any money from being quoted in the New York Times, but my point was uh, people often listen to experts who are not experts. And it's very easy to become a a expert without actually being one. And it, this was hugely controversial. People got very mad at me about it uh, as if I was this... You know, there's a lot of shooting the messenger in these things, I would say, because not not only did I think this illustrate a larger loophole in, in how the people who are quoted in the media uh, are, are found by the media, you know, as we, as we found in, in the 2016 election, like uh, a number of fake Russian trolls were quoted in like 1,800 media outlets. But um, The Times, unfortunately, was conned by another by this comedian over the next five years who was pretending to be a millennial uh in like six different millennial trend pieces and he's what actually was that guy's name again dan Ninen. and he, it was the all completely made up yeah he's 55 years old um, so anyways that, that those were some maybe of the he's a mil- millennial in mentality or I'm just maybe kidding. he identifies he as a millennial, millennial and that's all that counts uh
0: so when you do, so two questions do you do you still do these things a no. and B, do you feel guilty about any of it? Or is it just like, okay, well this is just me being a prankster or this is yeah. me trying to prove I mean, a point?
1: I, so I don't do these things and I didn't do these things. I mean I did these things to prove a point in a book that was about media manipulation. Did you right? I
0: mean did, with conspiracy, did
1: you uh, did you pull any any of these kind of No. I mean there wasn't there wasn't anything to pull. Like I I think that that's been a weird part on the book. People go like, "Oh, why why would you? Like, why should we believe you?" Well, it's I've written seven books since then, uh, seven ish, seven ish. I've written many books since then that have have done quite well. I don't I don't have the time or the the interest in doing these things. And part of the reason I wrote the book was to sort of end a chapter in my life. When you look at the way
0: that the media landscape. Does exist today in social media and the role it plays and all this fake stuff and trust me, you know I'm lying, yeah. Yeah. which is what pretty much most people are doing these days. Do you think that there is an end result to all of this, or do you think it just continues to, to to go deeper and deeper and deeper? And if that is, if the latter is the case, will it eventually
1: break? Well, you, I mean, one could argue that it's already broken. Uh, it's still working. No, 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 I mean that it sort of broke the whole world. Yeah. Uh, but but I, I think I think we are starting to wake up to the fact that these free things are incredibly costly. Like You're talking think, about, like, Facebook and... Yeah, Facebook and, and all this free... It's like, hey, all this free media, like, let me down. It's like, yeah, yeah. because they don't care about you. You're not their customer. And so I think, you know, the... the you know, one thing that the, the rise in sort of the subscription revenues of a lot of these sort of more prestigious legacy outlets, I think, is somewhat heartening. You know, I think people are realizing, like, oh, like if I, I pay, want good I, information, I got to pay for it. I pay for the, the New York Times, the Washington Post,
0: The Economist, Vanity Fair. Sure. Of course. I actually do pay for it. They make you pay for it? No, I just pay for it because it's like, you know, I just. Okay. And the only reason I know I pay for it is because I got a letter today that my credit card that uh, I need to update. Oh, it. So sure, sure, that's sure. How I know, but um, but no, I agree. I mean, I think that, I think that the, um, it's just I don't know. I I I've been in this industry for so long, and and I I can see where it's going, and I can see where it is, and I don't know, and I it is so disheartening, and uh, and look, you know, as a reporter for so for so many years I can tell you and you can ask any reporter and they will tell you this the quote from the expert in the article is not the expert it's the first person who picked up the phone right and like I, I don't care what outlet you're talking about that is the reality yeah. and uh and I think that um and I just I keep asking this question to people because I just kind of hope somebody has an answer but I don't see. I don't know how it goes on like this
1: for. I'm I'm somewhat biased, but I wish people would read less news and read more books. Like the oh, economics, I totally the economics of books are very reader friendly. Like that you have to spend two or three years of your life working on something that you then sell for fifteen dollars. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, you know, and that that it, it's supposed to endure and last and be true for more than five minutes. You know, like. And by the way, there's two thousand years of really good books that you can, you'll never even be able to read in your whole lifetime. Like uh, I, I I don't watch any cable news. I don't watch any, uh, sometimes I watch the local news, but I watch any cable news. Uh, I don't, I don't have Twitter or Facebook on my phone. I just consume, I try to consume as Uh, little uh, news as humanly possible. I recently deleted,
0: well, I deleted everything from my phone, all the social stuff, but I still had Twitter for a while, but I recently deleted that and, and I put the Kindle app, in its uh-huh. place, and so now when I'm standing in line of the book, yeah. at, at, like at the grocery store, I pop open the Kindle app and read a page of a book.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm excited about podcasting. I think the economics of podcasting are really good. I like uh, I like audio books. You know, I think we are. I think people are coming around. It's like we're waking up from like a 10 year binge or addiction. Okay,
0: so a few more things, and then, sure. and then we'll we'll let you escape off to your next yeah. interview, um, your next fake news interview. Yeah. Uh, you So you were the marketing director at uh, American Apparel, and your former boss, how do you say his name? Dove Charney. Dove. I was. I can't tell if it's Dove or Dove. But yeah. Dove, um, if he were still around today, he
1: would be the poster boy for the Me Too movement. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Maybe? What do you well, mean Well, it was just like so extreme and egregious that he was almost like, he was almost immune to it.
0: But – when you were there and you were doing all this marketing for 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 them and him were there moments where you were like this doesn't seem like it's very good and ethical or what?
1: yeah i mean it it was it was a it's complicated and i think part of the reason that some of these people are able to survive as long as they do is that there's a lot of good tied up in the bad parts of them what was the good for him I mean look he employed 10,000 people in in 20 countries he sort of was the is the only so so look there's like a lot of people in the fashion industry that are getting in trouble for you know comments they've made or inappropriate relationships. But the, the cardinal sin of the fashion industry is that they basically employ slaves all over the world to make your clothes so H&M can sell you a bikini for $4, right? So And those people die when those buildings collapse. or you know Those people live in hor- horrific conditions. And so I think the complicated part, and I think this kept a lot of us at American Apparel probably longer than we should have been, is that you believed very deeply in this one thing and you saw all the good this person was doing. And I think that rationalizes allows you to rationalize, uh, things that you shouldn't rationalize.
0: Do you, um, when you look at, uh, you've, you promoted, uh, your friend Max's book, right? Tucker, Max, Tucker yeah. Max's book. Uh, any regrets around some of the promotion around that? I mean, there was some pretty, yeah. pretty gnarly stuff that you guys did, right?
1: Right. Regrets, a regrets, a hard word for me because, um, you know, you end up where you end up because of decisions that you make. So, yeah. like I, I, and I, I think, I think the thing, I think the thing with Tucker was, was, was in some ways why I relate to the, the people at Gawker, which is that you're, you're telling yourself this is a game and that you should be good at the game, and you're not thinking about the people on the other side of the game. Uh, you're not thinking about whether this is a game you should be playing or not like you're not at, there there's some quote so i i i'm that i'm paraphrasing so it sounds like i'm stealing but it's yeah uh are you asking yourself whether this is a good game or not and i i i i spent a chunk of my 20s getting good at something and then asking myself not asking myself often enough whether i liked it or whether it was good or whether it was making the world a better place and part of the reason i wrote the book i didn't have to write the book i could right now be a Probably have a job in the Trump administration if I wanted one. Um, Would you want one? Oh, well, I was I was actually offered I was actually offered a communications job for one of the one of the cabinet members, which I did not accept. But uh, like I mean, I could I could I could be any any number of the uh, influential people in the alt right. I could I could. There's a path I see where if I had made lots of bad decisions, I could have ended up there. And I'm so I'm very grateful that I'm not, you know, and I, I I mean, I feel like I have an inner compass that would not have allowed that, but I, I, I can empathize with how people end up in things that other people have no ability to comprehend. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. All right, let's play
0: uh, a little game, uh, to wrap up here. Um, I'm going to drop some names okay, and you're going to, you're going to tell me where you think they are five, 10 years from now. Okay. All right. You ready?
1: Nick, Nick Denton, uh, probably has some different media or tech Tech company, like uh, kind of like a Gawker, or not a media site, but like some, you know, he's he's obsessed with Kinja. That was like, I feel like Gawker was this thing that accidentally became successful. What he really liked was the commenting platform Kinja. I think something will he'll make something. So he's not done. I don't think so. And if he and he if he
0: makes a hundred million dollars, Peter Thiel can't come and take it, right? No, no, that's all settled. It's all done. And he walked away with a good chunk of change. Um, Okay. Uh,
1: Peter Thiel. More powerful than he is, now. I think one of the more powerful people in the world. Where do you think he is in five,
0: ten years? Like, is he is he uh, is he governor of California? Is he?
1: Uh Living on Mars with Elon Musk, like what? yeah, I don't. I think I think he likes freedom, right? So I don't think he like. I think he could have had any position in this administration. Why didn't he take it? I don't think it was just a calculation that you know it was it was pretty combustible. I think I think he likes doing whatever he wants, not having a lot of responsibilities day to day, and you know he could be the CEO of Palantir, but he's not. So I I I would be surprised if he was governor or. President or Supreme Court justice or something. What that, do you think he will do then? Just I think just keep... continue doing what he's doing, but, but but it continue to influence things often in secret. Does that mean I should be worried
0: if I've written negatively about him? That he'll come and take my chickens? And I'll...
1: no, no, I, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. If <laughs> Owen Tom, I, maybe Owen Thomas is your canary in the coal mine. If, as, so as long watching, as Owen Thomas is still alive and not check in with him every couple weeks, <laughs> and then uh, go underground if you if you don't hear from him. Yeah.
0: Uh, all right. So let
1: let uh, AJ Deloria. Does does he does he have he a redemption re-emerges. story? I I do think there's a redemption story and i think he reemerges as a writer of some kind as a like a maybe he writes a book or he writes a column somewhere i think he reemerges as a writer because that's what he does and knows um let's just do one two more okay. uh, one is actually the the media industry as a whole yeah uh hopefully there's a forest fire of some kind that clears out most of the debris and garbage and we're left Kind of with the media outlets we've always had. Yeah. <laughs> That's my hope. I, I agree with you on yeah. that one. Uh, and last but not least, uh, Ryan Holiday. So you've written seven-ish books. Yeah. Not uh, on you're, a sustainable you're, path. You're, not on a sustainable path. So I shouldn't have written five more books in five years. like Because that will be accompanied by but, a well But what do you want to do when something. you grow up? Like what's... I, to me, being a, a writer of books that people read is like the greatest job in the whole world. Yeah, I agree mean, with that. How many people... like I, how many people are trying to climb that mountain? And so that's something I've had. Like, I got called back to American Apparel when they, uh, you know, fired Dove. And, and I remember one day I, I felt a little rushed. Like, I had to get back. There. And I was like, I'm like a writer, like a real writer. Like, I have multiple <laughs> books in my name. And I'm, like, rushing back to a staff meeting because I agreed to this. What, what the hell was I thinking? And so trying to make sure that I appreciate the, the luxury of this job. And what's your dream book that you get to write? This was one of them. I mean, I felt like I was—I was the only one that could have written this story. So there's that. I—I um, I don't know. I don't—I don't have a dream. I don't have a dream book, uh, but I'll just keep writing them as they come. All right. So last question. Okay. Um, uh, what do
0: all the people in the book think of the book? Well, I haven't been sued yet. So that's good. And you're still alive. I'm still, I'm still alive. You're checking in with Owen Thomas on a regular basis.
1: Well, so the scary, the scariest moment was about three days. Uh, no, right around the time that Charles Harder, who's the lawyer who represents Teal, and also is now Trump's lawyer, right around the time he sent that letter to Michael Wolff's publisher. Yeah. He was like, "Hey, Ryan, I heard your book's coming out soon. I'd love to see a copy." You know. Did uh, you respond? Uh, yeah, I said you could. I'll send you one when, when it comes out, uh, which I did. And I haven't heard from him since. So I, 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 uh, I could be, you know, living on borrowed time, but so far I think I'm good. (laughs) And, and Nick, uh, Nick, I know has read articles about it. I don't know if he's read the book. Uh, I don't know if AJ's read it. AJ sent me a nice note and, uh, and Peter Peter's read it. Uh, I think he, he's, he disagreed with some things and liked other things. And then the weir- – so the weirdest – I did an interview on Bubba the Love Sponge's radio show Whoa, uh, was two that? days ago. Uh, and for people who don't know, if you haven't read the book yet, he is the guy who recorded the Hogan sex tape. With his wife. With his wife. Uh, and he was like, you know, I read it cover to cover. He's like, there are some things I, I think you got wrong, but I, I liked it. It was a great read. And so I was like – if. If that guy, if all the people who are predisposed to not like it, he's probably number one. Yeah. And uh, if he liked it, I guess that's. I guess I played it down the middle. Well, on that note, thank you so much for taking
0: the time to of chat today. It's been fascinating. Uh, the book is Conspiracy: Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Anatomy of Intrigue. It is, without a doubt, a page turner. I, I opened it and then actually closed it and was done with it. So, uh, oh wow, it's a it's a really fantastic read. So thank you. Thanks for taking the time to come on today. Appreciate it. Thanks to my guest today,
1: Ryan Holiday. Ryan, I'm going to ask you to read the next line. Okay. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. With a little more p- pizzazz next time. Okay. I'll do the next
0: one. You can find these podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Can you tell them to leave a review because they never leave a review? Yeah, please. Please leave a review. A really good one. They no, one they do review. matter. It's like they the main matter. thing Completely that They do matter, yeah. Uh, thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, my editors of Manly Fair. Yeah, I will see you all next week. And hopefully you will go and buy Ryan's book because it's fantastic. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast expert analysis, no spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gabfest, Fest, I sit down with the New York Times' as Emily Bazelon and CBS News' as John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to the Political Gabfest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.